Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Ellie Albrecht. Ellie's an associate at Gibson Dunn's Washington, D.C. office, where he's a member of the corporate practice, where he focuses on private equity and mergers and acquisitions. He's a graduate of Georgetown Law, Go Hoyas, and Johns Hopkins University, Go Blue Jays. In addition to his day job, he writes about his own path in the legal profession, primarily on LinkedIn, where, in his words, he focuses on balancing life as a private equity lawyer, husband, and law dad in a way that is fully integrated. Can't wait to talk about that topic as we get going. What I love about his posts are that he shares openly about finding the balance between being a fully engaged dad and working in what everyone knows is a very highly demanding legal practice. As a fellow Jewish law dad interested in many of the same topics and on a similar, albeit somewhat different journey, I was really excited to interview him. So welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Thanks for uh, being here. Thank you so much, Jonah. It's wonderful to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast and the light that you shed on the legal community and the impact you have on, on young, young lawyers specifically. So it's wonderful to be on. Yeah, well, this this could be the mutual admiration society, and uh, you know, someday maybe we'll uh, we'll we'll have to formalize it more because because I think what you're doing over on LinkedIn and out in the world now is is fantastic. But before we dive into your thoughts on sort of balance and law dad and observant Jew, I want to talk about your hat or your role as an M and A lawyer. So I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about you know your path and your decision to join that sort of piece of our, our legal practice. Absolutely. So I'm sure we do have a lot to talk about, but I was not destined to be a lawyer. I actually started out going to school for psychology and more specifically industrial psychology. So I love the human psyche and I love business. And the goal was to marry the two and be the next Malcolm Gladwell. That was my goal. And then I met my wife when I was in undergrad. And she is a great Jewish girl. And so when we met, she said to me, so uh, what would you like to do? You know, when you go out into, into the, the professional world. And I said, well, I want to do industrial psychology. You know, it's this really cool area where you impact corporations to, you know, view humans more as, as, as humans and, and uh, change the way corporations view employees. And, you know, about Daniel Goldman and emotional intelligence. And she nodded and she smiled and she said, so um, have you considered law or medicine? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, uh, med school is going to take me too long, but law sounds good to me. And so I thought, you know, Ellie, the lawyer, I was like, I could get behind that. And so I still loved business and started uh, really to... You know, explore what it meant to be a lawyer and what it meant specifically to be a corporate lawyer and a business lawyer and to advocate for corporate clients and uh, really got, got to know it and to love it. And so I switched over to a business major in undergrad. And I uh, then went to law school to Georgetown, as you mentioned, 
And my focus from day one was always M&A, private equity, venture capital. And so I was one of the rare law students who were very focused on transactional work. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I do feel like people come to law school rightly or wrongly thinking that all law is either litigation or writing statutes. And I'm not really sure why that is. I think part of it is television. Part of it is so many people are drawn to the profession for the simple reason that someone in their family, myself included, said, oh, you like to argue, you'd make a great lawyer. But you know, transactional law is such a huge part of the profession. And so many of my students end up doing it. And many of them, not all, but many of them end up really loving it and finding it as a good a good natural path for them. The other thing I, I think is great about your story is that people forget that law is a business and law is part of business. And so I think there are a lot of business folks out there who would say, oh, I, I don't want to argue. I don't want to stand up in court. I don't want to be a lawyer. And it's it's actually quite different. There are many lawyers who are incredibly business focused. And uh, I imagine it's allowed you to do a lot of the same things that you thought about even as an undergrad business major, but in very advanced ways. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. I'm not involved in researching case law on Westlaw. I read I read Delaware court opinions that come out that impact my M&A, my corporate environment. But I have not logged into Westlaw since I graduated law school and have no interest in logging into Westlaw. I did not like civil procedure. I love contracts. I love that in this country, you know, me and you can contract for almost anything that we agree to contract for, right? We can get into almost whatever transactional business relationship we want on almost any terms that we want. And I love that. I love that kind of give and take. But also, like you said, lawyers are, most lawyers are not in big law, but even the lawyers in big law are really kind of business entities to themselves. So we have to do good work for people above us, and those people have to do good work for people above them, and they have to continue to generate business. And it's a human-to-human sport where you're, you're making other people happy and hopefully continuing to get business from them. Totally. And one of the interesting things that I've heard now that I've tried to sort of expand my pool of transactional lawyers on the podcast, although if you're a transactional lawyer and you're listening, reach out. I'm happy to interview some more transactional folks. Is this idea that actually transactional work is sometimes less of a zero sum game than litigation that actually like working together with the other side to close the deal or to decide this deal can't close for one reason or the other is beneficial to everybody. And so it actually is a practice area that I've heard, and it was not my practice, I was a litigator, is a little bit more collaborative and a little less I win, you lose. Is that accurate? I think that is very accurate, right? There are things that we're fighting over, but mostly, I'll give you a good example on the collaborative nature of M&A. My advice to junior associates on an M&A deal is that when a deal kicks off, and you know who your opposing counsel is, locate who the junior lawyer is on that team and give them a call and talk to them and agree to work together on things because often that sort of back channel, that sort of collaboration can help get a deal done. And ultimately, it's not zero sum. In an M&A deal, there's a give and a take and a compromise and a deal-focused lawyer will work to get to the finish line and get an equitable result for their client. But you need to get to the finish line and you need to do it quickly. 
And if you drag your feet and you nitpick on every little item, those are not the deal lawyers that I see succeeding in, in M&A. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually worked for a former deal lawyer turned litigator. And one of his pieces of advice, he was on uh, one of the first five episodes of the podcast was always make friends with the other side or make friends with the the whoever you're working with in the government agency. Because even if you're opposing counsel, that doesn't mean that you have to be opposing human beings. You're going to be talking a lot. You're going to be disagreeing a lot. Better that you should know that they really like hockey and you really like hockey. And at least you can have a little banter about hockey before you have to dive into, well, my client's position is. So I, I think that's really good advice. You know, one of the challenges, I think, for law students who come in thinking they want to do litigation but hear about corporate work but don't take any corporate classes till much later in law school is they don't actually know what MA lawyers do every day. And so I guess I'm just curious about like some of the tasks, some of the documents you create. Like if I sat in your office, home office or or in-person office, what would I what kinds of things would I see you doing? Right. Uh, very, very good question. And I'll start from sort of the ground. I mean, on some days you'll see my four-year-old sitting on my lap if she's sick and home from school. But you can try to ignore that just like I try to ignore it sometimes. But on the broad scale, what an M&A lawyer does is they represent a client, generally a business entity. Let's say in, in my case, it's a private equity fund that is buying another business. So there's a partner at my firm, David Lee, who has a great analogy for this. And he says, we're really just wedding planners. We're getting two parties together and getting them married. And the M&A lawyer needs to track the person who's dealing with flowers and the venue and the music and track all these different items and make sure that they all come together and get have their input at closing. And I think that's a great analogy for what an M&A lawyer does because they're really a quarterback of a whole bunch of disparate factors. We need to know a little bit about employment, a little bit about IP, a little bit about tax so that we can bring those all those parties together to get a deal done. So in the broad sense, it's one company buying another company. They can do it through a merger or an asset purchase or a stock sale. So that's what's happening kind of on the broad scale. And what am I doing on a daily basis? I'm negotiating agreements. And what that means is I'm drafting documents, sending them to the other side, reviewing the comments that the opposing counsel give, and then getting often getting on the phone with them, hashing out different sides, giving, taking, you know, setting out our rationale for why our position is more reasonable or more market than theirs, or explaining to them our position and what's really the most important things for us. And then redrafting documents and reviewing draft documents and sending those documents to delegating them to junior associates or paralegals or admin to work on those documents, and then sending them up the chain to partners who then send them to clients or to the other side. Everything is document-based. So if you think that, like Harvey Specter, we're jumping in our Aston Martin or whatever Harvey drives <laughs> and, and, and going, you know, going to negotiate with somebody at 11 p.m. at night in person over scotch, that's not what we're doing. I can dispel with that now. What we are doing at 11 p.m. or 1 a.m. or 3 a.m. is we're revising documents. We're writing up issues lists to get input from clients. And then moving, moving the deal forward that way until we get to a conclusion. Younger lawyers 
out of law school are generally going to handle like maybe two to four deals, two to five deals, depending on their seniority and, and how busy it is. But a big part of what they're doing is due diligence and due diligence gets a bad rap. But I actually think due diligence is incredibly important. And what due diligence is, is that our client needs to know everything about the company that they're buying. And so we need to find out, are their legal books in order? What do they do? What sort of customers do they have? How does that, you know, those unique customers have to integrate into our positions, right? How, you know, what sort of provisions or reps or covenants do we need because of that unique business? So a junior lawyer will really learn all about that type of business. And in course of a month or two months, a 60-day deal or 45-day deal, the junior lawyer may be learning about a massive textbook company or a water purification company or a lifestyle brand all at the same time. And one of the things I love about M&A is getting to dive into so many different industries, getting to know so many different types of businesses, and you really get to know them intimately. And, and so due diligence is a big part of a junior lawyer's job. And then tracking all the pieces. There are so many pieces of an M&A deal that need to all, like the wedding planner analogy, they all have to come together at the end. And a good junior lawyer will keep a good checklist and will track all of those different pieces and how to move those things forward. It's funny because it doesn't sound that different in some ways from being a junior big law litigator, at least, which was my sort of experience, in the sense that before you're sort of standing up in court or negotiating a protective order with opposing counsel, you're just learning the facts. You're kind of mastering the facts, and that's how you own the matter. And in some ways, you're not skilled enough yet to do all the legal issue spotting, but you're absolutely skilled enough to be the keeper of the facts. And that was always true for me. What stood out for Junior lawyers who are more junior to me were the ones who would say, well, I know we're making this argument, but what about this fact that so-and-so said 10 years ago? And we'd look at the junior lawyer and say, we have no idea what you're talking about. Please explain. And then we could sort of integrate it into our practice. The other example I've given on the podcast before is for a while, I was, I think, the world's greatest expert on text message pricing between 2005 and 2007 in the year like 2015, 2016. So not not your classic cocktail party information, but you do get to learn interesting, fun things. And if you like learning about a topic at a sort of detailed level without caring exactly what that topic is, I think being a junior lawyer, even at a big law firm, that part can be fun. I totally agree. I totally agree. It really can be a lot of fun. And the primary advice I give to junior lawyers is and the primary advice I didn't take when I was a junior lawyer, and I wish <laughs> right. I had, is just enjoy that stage, right? Enjoy the stage of being a first year, of doing the diligence, of tracking the checklists, right? It may feel like menial work, but it's important. And just enjoy that. And I was consistently trying to get to the next stage, and I felt pressured to do better. And when I was a junior, I wanted to be a mid-level. And, and you know, when I was doing diligence, I wanted to work on primary documents. And it's really good to just dive into the, the current stage and get good at the current stage and not continually be trying to get to the next one. Yeah, I think that's awesome advice. I mean, I guess the other question, and maybe these two things are connected, 
is how did you learn these skills? Like, how did you learn what to be looking for in diligence or what to put on the checklist? Were those things that you learned in law school or were those things you learned by working on deals? Just by working on deals. You do not learn any M&A in law school or really any skills that translate into being a successful, successful M&A attorney. And I took all the M&A classes that Georgetown offers, and, and they do offer a fair amount of corporate law classes. I think that if one day I will write a curriculum and teach a corporate law class that I think will be helpful, but it is just the only requisite skill that one needs for M&A is a deep curiosity and motivation to learn and be a good lawyer. And that is it. That is all you need because everything else you learn in practice, everything else you absorb. Sometimes you have to hear it once, twice, three times. And then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I absorbed this. I know what I'm talking about now. And so just in practice, if you're a law student who doesn't know anything about business or M&A and can't read a balance sheet, that is totally fine. That is totally fine. You just have to want to learn it. I'll put on my law professor hat for a second and flip that 180 degrees, which is to say, if that's the case and you're going to go to law school, use law school as a time to learn how to digest a lot of information. Use law school as a time to build processes and build skills. Being a better writer, I imagine you're not writing a whole lot of motions or letters but being a better writer, even when you're writing an email to a client or to a partner or to a more senior associate, being a better legal writer is going to help you even as, a, as an M&A lawyer. So again, maybe it goes back to your message of be comfortable in the moment that you are, as opposed to trying to act like the next step. The moment you're, you are in is important and will help you get to the next step. Do you think that's accurate? I think that's incredibly accurate. And what you're hitting on is all those soft skills that like, yes, you can learn in law school, right? The soft skills like writing a concise email, you know, emails should not be longer than like two, three lines and maybe some bullet points. Nobody's going to read them. But being a good writer, like you said, Jonah, incredibly important. But you can also learn other skills in law school that I think are, are critical. And one is getting comfortable with those peaks and valleys of practice, right? The cadence in law school is like it starts out slower and then it gets really intense midway and toward the end. So you need to really get comfortable, like rejuvenating during the slow times and accelerating during the fast times. And you have to learn to love the fast times and love the slow times. And that's like critical for M&A, right? Because M&A is up and down. And if, you, if you're slow, you know, I've seen people freaking out because they're slow. And then when they're busy, they're freaking out because they're busy. And in M&A, you have to get comfortable with both. And I think another soft skill you can learn in law school is organization, like organization in an M&A deal, making sure you have a system for filing emails and recalling those emails, making sure that you know how to delegate and process information. I think are incredibly important skills that can be learned in law school and and prepare one for practice. Absolutely. And and that term, right, soft skills almost sounds like they're unimportant and I think they're the kind of I sometimes think of them as meta skills like you have to be able to do them to set yourself up to do anything else, right? Like 
I always thought about studying for a law school exam as very similar to what you were talking about of learning a business really quickly. It was like, I need to learn all of admin law as taught through the lens of admin professor, and I need to be able to recall it. Then I need to be able to turn my brain 90 degrees in 36 hours and take an evidence exam as taught by that professor. Those skills are really helpful, and they're building processes and, yeah, meta skills. I think that's great. I guess one thing that that I've heard a lot from M&A lawyers who in the moments when they might not love their job so much is that it it's a place that can often have very late nights and very quick deadlines. And so I guess I'm curious if you'd talk a little bit about why that is and, and sort of how you deal with that in a professional way. Yes. The short answer is that M&A has very late nights and very quick deadlines. And in the past few years, so M&A in general does. Public M&A has a little bit slower timeline. Strategic M&A, and by that I refer to large companies buying other companies that are generally a strategic acquisition for them. And private equity has the most aggressive timelines and the quickest deadlines and the highest pressure. And it's particularly difficult because everything has to be absolutely perfect, right, all the time. And it's very difficult to make things perfect in a such an aggressive environment. But I do think that if you're going into M&A, you have to enjoy the adrenaline rush of those aggressive late nights. And you have to, particularly in private equity, when the client in prior years, it's been a very much a seller's market in private equity. So I remember a deal I did about a year and a half ago. Very big deal, very competitive deal. Lots of private equity firms were taking a run at this target, this target company, and in multi-billion dollar company. And our client told us, we're not offering the best price, we, but we are going to get all of the legal work done the fastest, and we're going to beat everybody to a negotiated deal the fastest. And so we said, you mean you are or we are, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> because that meant that, that they tried to turn around a bid within you know six or seven days, which meant that we were up all night for six or seven days to get this done. And we ultimately got it done. And we won the deal or our client won the deal because the legal work was done faster than any other party who was bidding on this. So how do you get, uh, so M&A is, aggressive and it is uh, has tight deadlines and it requires perfection. And you have to just kind of get comfortable with that. The flip side is there are wonderful slow times. So, you know, the market right now seems to be slowing down, I think, as, as most private equity analysts will tell you. And uh, we're seeing that and things are getting slow. And as a private equity lawyer and an M&A lawyer, you really have to then be able to pivot and focus on other things that matter. For me, that's family. For me, that's working out. It's hiking. It's health. So, you know, we have to have other parts of our life, and we have to turn and focus on those parts of our life. And I just want to relay a story from former Georgetown professor, um, Chief Judge James Baker, who was the chief judge of the military court. And he said, as a young Marine, they they were on an infantry training mission and they were all sitting around and freezing at night and their commanding officer came by and said, what are you guys doing? And they all responded, well, we're waiting for the enemy. And 
He said, why aren't you making a fire? Why aren't you enjoying the moments that you have to rejuvenate and to warm up? And so they made a fire and they rejuvenated and they warmed up and they energized and they were ready for the next contact with the pretend enemy. And so often when things get slow, I tell myself, build a fire, right? Invest in those things that I will need over the long term and I will need to be there for me when things do get busy again. That's great. And I think, A, that's really great advice. B, it's something that junior lawyers absolutely need to hear because even as a litigator, I remember getting antsy my first summer at the firm feeling like, oh, I don't have a big enough case. Then you take on a big case and then you realize you have two big cases that are going to trial at the same time and then you have to get taken off one. You have to be careful and it sounds like there's plenty of hours to go around. And so the hours that don't need to be worked, you can use those to recharge and refresh. The other thing I'll say is, I think it's a really important question that people should ask themselves when they're thinking about what kind of lawyer do I want to be, is what is the cadence of my life going to look like? And if you hear what we just talked about, and that's not for you, that's okay. There's plenty of ways to be a lawyer and never pull an all-nighter. But there's also, you know, maybe that is what drives you. I, I think the best trial lawyers are the ones that just feel that rush when they stand up before the judge and they're willing to do anything to get into court. You just have to find what drives you. And I think that's part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is, is introduce people to all of those different feelings so that they don't necessarily have to do it themselves the first time. But I want to sh- switch gears a little bit, which is we talked about the hours, we talked about business, we talked about work. And one of the other sort of verticals or key parts of your so-called fully integrated life is that you're an observant Jew. You are a Sabbath observer and don't use technology or work from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown and on major Jewish holidays. First of all, am I right in explaining sort of your practice that way? But second, how do you make that possible and also be an M&A lawyer? Your explanation, Jonah, is is exactly right. An observant Jew or an Orthodox Jew observes Sabbath, uh, among other things, among uh, other dietary restrictions and many other things. But the way it mostly impacts career is through Sabbath observant, right? From Friday night to Saturday night, depending on sundown, I turn off my phone, I turn off my computer, and I am absolutely unreachable unless somebody sends a uh, carrier pigeon to my house or knocks on the door, which can be very disconcerting, especially in M&A, especially in private equity. Deals don't stop on the weekends. M&A deals do not stop on the weekends. And some partners feel, and some M&A lawyers feel, I, that one must be absolutely accessible at all times of the day and night for their clients and to move deals forward. I'm not going to comment one way or another on that, but I work six days a week. And as I was coming up as a young lawyer, I was told by many people, many mentors, uh, both observant Jews and non-observant Jews, that it is impossible to be an M&A lawyer and observe the Sabbath and observe Shabbat. So I was unwilling to compromise. I wanted to be an M&A lawyer and I wanted to be observant of Shabbat and of my faith. But I did for a long time try to hide it. I, I tried not to tell people. I didn't wear my kippah, which is a traditional Jewish head covering that Orthodox people wear. And, and you probably can't see, but I'm wearing a kippah right now. And I started to a little while back which was a, a big, big move for me because I've always 
tried not to let it be known that I was observant and I didn't want it to affect the deals that I was put on. I didn't want it to affect the way the clients saw me, like saw my dedication, right? And I felt like, okay, if I was going off line for Shabbat, does that mean that I'm not as dedicated to the deal team? Does that mean that I won't be as successful in, in my career? And Jonah, I'm not going to tell you that it hasn't been without consequences. I recall several occasions where there were direct consequences to me observing Shabbat. Deals that I wasn't put on, uh, deals that I was taken off of, and all the deals that I don't even know about that I wasn't staffed on. That was especially true early on in my career when as a junior associate, one of the main things you have to offer is your accessibility and responsiveness. So I'm not going to tell you there hasn't been career consequences. However, I will tell you that I would have it no other way. I go offline for Shabbat and I shut off everything to do with work. And on Shabbat, we create no new realities. All we do is we deal with the reality as it exists then. We dedicate ourselves to self-growth, introspection. I have deep conversations with my family. I take my kids to prayers. I push my kids on swings. I have deep engagement with my wife. And for 25 hours, I'm focused on my family and the aspects that are not work-related. And the result is that after those 25 hours, I know very clearly that my human value is not based on my work. It's not based on how much I can produce or how many hours I can bill. I have inherent value as a human that's beyond my title as lawyer. That is what Shabbat drives home for me. So does it have career consequences? It does. It does. But the flip side, I would not have any other way. And I would just add that for so long, I would apologize for going offline for Shabbat. And I would procrastinate it. And Friday afternoon, I'd email the team and say, hey, I'm so, so sorry. Like, I'm going offline for Shabbat. Like, I hate to do this. Here's where everything stands. Here's what may come up. And I would feel so bad about doing it. And then my wife told me one day, she said, don't apologize because you're doing the right thing. Don't apologize when everyone should be taking 25 hours off focused on what's deeply meaningful for them. Nobody should be working seven days a week, 16 hours a day. Everyone deserves to invest in those qualities that make them a human. And so she said, don't apologize when you're the one doing the right thing, and they should be joining you in curating and dedicating themselves to their mental health and things that other things outside of work that make them uh, happy. And I guess the follow-up to that, and I think that's really powerful, and I think in a profession that is always on, and maybe we can talk about this a little more, but you know, with technology and work from home, we're literally always on in very robust ways, in ways that a generation ago just didn't exist. Are there things you do for your team or with your team or things that your team does with you? Because it's one thing to say this is important to me and someone says, that's fine, you're fired, right? It's another to say this is important to me and I work a lot of hours and I bill just as many hours as every other M&A lawyer. I just do it in six days instead of seven. How do you make that work, especially now that you're a little more senior and have a little more um, experience making it work with your team? Certainly. So there are definite 
concrete things that I do, but the main focus is making it very clear that I am dedicated to the team and dedicated to the deal. And six days a week, I am fully dedicated. That doesn't mean that I miss school events for my kids. I don't miss them anymore. I don't miss birthday parties. I don't miss putting my children to bed or having family dinners. However, I am available and I I am on my phone if something does come up. And I think different things will work for different people. But the main focus needs to be that if you're a Shabbat observant Jew, you need to be conscious that others may view you as less of a team player. And I don't blame people for having that perspective. I can't tell you how many times I've gone offline and people have said, wow, lucky you. Good thing you get to go have some mimosas like on the beach while we're all working, right? I heard that so many times. And I understand that perspective. They're working Friday night through Saturday night, and I'm not. So it needs to become evident, especially at the junior level and the mid-level, that you're otherwise, other than taking this day, you were dedicated, and that this day is not necessarily a vacation day. This is a day to invest in other parts of our life to help us rejuvenate and re-energize and refocus on the next week. So you know, what do I do? There are certain things that I'm responsible for as a mid-level, basically an entire deal, right? Making sure every aspect of the deal I know about. And so I do make sure to draft an email on Friday morning telling people what time Shabbat is, telling my team exactly what is outstanding on this deal, exactly who's taking care of it. And I attach email, I attach emails or documents that may be relevant, right? Because they're not going to be able to reach me for 25 hours. So they need to have everything there in that Shabbat email. And my team has gotten used to getting a Shabbat email every Friday morning. And that is my way of saying, hey, I'm not just pawning off this deal for 25 hours. I'm still responsible for it. I will pick this up Saturday night. And I do pick it up Saturday night. And I do often work Saturday night. And I bill just as many hours, if not more, than many other people of my vintage. I just do it in six days a week. And I hope that I'm viewed as much of a team player as anyone else on the team, even though I'm observing Shabbat. Can it be done? I don't know. I don't know. The jury's out. I'm definitely trying to make it work. And I'm trying to smooth the path for Shabbat observant M&A lawyers who come after me. Yeah. And I think there's a lot there personally, and I'm grateful that you were willing to share it because I think, as you said early on, right, it's hard to share that information and it requires you to be it to show an openness that lawyers don't always show. It's also a good reminder that the reason we have teams is hopefully that not everyone has to be on all the time. And the idea that we do is troubling and the idea that we don't refresh uh, is troubling. And refreshment doesn't need to be the same thing for every person. And, and you basically said that, and I absolutely agree. And, and I hope we can continue that conversation because I, I think it is something that is hard. And I imagine it requires buy-in not just from people below you, but it requires some buy-in from people above you as well. That's absolutely true. And I can do everything. I can do everything right. And if I didn't have a supportive team, supportive partners, supportive leadership at my firm, who's directly been involved in supporting Sabbath observant people, it would be very, very difficult. And obviously, I could be at many other firms and I'm at my firm because of this level of support 
and encouragement. You're absolutely right. It requires, it's a team effort and it requires others to make sacrifices to support us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's turn another 90 degrees and talk law dadding and the fully integrated life. You sort of said, I think you may have been somewhat offhand, but I don't miss birthday parties anymore. And I guess I'm curious about sort of how you think about your role of dad with your professional life and maybe how you've how that has changed over over recent time. Like you said, I publicly post about being a law dad with the hashtag law dad, which I guess some people just call me law dad now. But I didn't used to be this way. Like I said, sort of offhand and you picked up on adeptly. I grew up with the understanding that a dad's role a father's role was primarily to provide for their family. If I died, I wanted on my tombstone to be written, this man provided a good life for their family, right? That was my main goal in life. And I didn't grow up with money, and I grew up with heavy financial insecurity. And I, and I remember that financial insecurity viscerally as, as a young child and tasted it at the time. There's a taste of that fear of, of financial insecurity. And at the time, as a young boy, I said to myself, when I have a family, I will never allow my children to be fearful of where their next meal would come from, or they would have to you know, not get a treat at the supermarket because they were worried about not making the budget that month. And whether that was the reality or not, that was what I felt in, in my family growing up. So I remember that fear, and it drove me. It drove me throughout my, my early life to provide that life for my family. But I was also myopically focused when I got married on providing. And I felt like that was my only role. And I did feel like as a father, and this is you know based on the role models that I had and the fathers that I'd seen, you know, if they worked and provided and maybe like played catch with their kids on the weekends, that would be like a gold star dad. You know, mom would really pat you on the back because you took your son out for for a little baseball catch. And that is kind of the pinnacle of daddying. And that that was like how I said to myself, you know, I'm, I'm not only just going to provide, but I'm going to be a great dad. And I'm like going to babysit my kids once in a while, right? I'm not going to be one of those dads that doesn't take their kids out to the park. And I had my first son when I was studying for the LSAT prior to law school. And I was still absolutely laser focused on being successful getting into a good law school, getting good grades. Then I had my daughter and I was a first year associate. And I was really, you know, at a prior firm, I was really focused on being successful and billing as many hours as I can. I slept in the office and I went to every firm event and I dedicated myself. And, you know, my family was always secondary. And I remember coming home one day after a particularly difficult time. And I had just closed a deal and I felt very proud and very excited. And I came home and I wanted to share that with my family. And I walked in the front door and my son happened to be at the front door at the time. And he saw me and he turned around and started crying and ran away. And my daughter, who my wife was holding at the time, she must've been a year or two old. She clung to my wife like I was a stranger. And I looked at my wife, and I felt like a stranger from her too. And I thought to myself, if this is success in big law M&A, I don't want it. I just closed a deal. I feel so good about myself. 
if this is what success looks like, you can have it. You can have it. I don't want it. I don't want it at the cost of my family. So at that point, I remember sitting down with my wife and I said, you know, and I was emotional. I said, I can't, how do I do, how do I do it both? How can I be an involved, engaged father and a good big law lawyer? Like, you can't. And I had a mentor at the time who told me something that stuck with me forever, still sticks with me today. And he said, either you can be a great lawyer or a great dad. But if you try to do both, you're going to be a mediocre lawyer and a mediocre dad. And only now do I realize how profoundly untrue that was. And I told my wife that at the time when we sat down and we were talking and I was crying and she was crying. And she said, Ellie, you can do it all. You can be a great dad and a great lawyer. You do not have to do one or the other. It is not a zero-sum game. You can be a fully, fully engaged, involved dad and a fully engaged lawyer. And you can make it work and you can show others that you can make it work. And so then basically from that moment on, I sat my kids down. My son was probably not old enough to understand, but it was an important conversation for me to have. And I said, hey, I got to say this to you. I haven't been there for you guys. I've been dedicated to work. I thought that being dedicated to work meant being dedicated to you. I thought that by working and providing for you, I was showing my love for you. But I realize now that I wasn't prioritizing you. And I'm going to prioritize you from now on. And give me another chance. Give me another shot. And I promise in time, like, we'll forget this ever happened. We'll forget you. I was ever distant. And I told him that and committed myself both to being deeply engaged with my wife and supportive for her and engaged with the kids. And I haven't looked back. And it's been absolutely amazing ever since. Wow. I mean, I guess the the necessary question, right, is we just talked about how you were, el- you are eligible to be on whenever you're needed, six days a week, and you're a Sabbath observer, and you're fully committed to your children. Brass tacks, like how do you make that happen? Or to put it another way, you know, if you're listening to this and you're saying, I haven't had that moment yet, but I'm close and I want to start changing, what what does that look like, at least from your life? And obviously your life and your profession and your family is going to be different than everybody else's, different than mine and the next person. But I think we need to talk about how we do it to give people the imagination of how they can do it. Absolutely true. And I think that the first step to doing it is to set that goal, is to say in plain English, this is what I want to do. I want to be an engaged dad and I want to be fully committed to my career and I will do both. Our brains and our psyche are incredible things. And when we set goals, when we set the GPS, the point of destination that we want, I think that our psyche helps us to get there. But if you're talking about brass tacks, day to day, what do you do? The way I have found to work is more of of a psychological construct that you mentioned earlier, which I call the fully integrated life. And I prior to this, I thought that the way to balance and the way I first started trying to balance when I was committed to when I recommitted myself to to being a dad and a husband is that I said, well, I'm going to have a work Ellie and I'm going to dedicate myself to that work Ellie. And then when I come home, I'm going to completely turn off the work Ellie 
and I'm going to be a dad, Ellie. And then when I put my kids to bed, I'm going to be a husband, Ellie. And then, you know, I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to be a work, Ellie, right? So there were all these kind of different personas that I had, and I tried to snap in and out of them, and I ultimately failed. I found it to be, I don't know if some people can make it work, but I can't. So I moved toward this fully integrated proposition or paradigm where I'm the same Ellie throughout my life. And that means that when I'm with my children, I have my phone and I'm responding to emails and I explain that very honestly to my children. And so the way I do it is I get my children on board with my work goals and I try to get my work colleagues on board with my home goals. So when I'm with my children, I share with them the names of the deals that I'm doing. I share with them the challenges that I'm facing. I, I, I faced a a human on human challenge the other day with opposing counsel. And I said, you know, this person just does not know how to be nice. I'm somebody who thinks niceness is, is the way to go. Like, you know, I shared that with my son. Like, I'm having a tough time here. I, I don't know how to get through to this person. I don't know how to resolve this issue. And so when I then pulled out my phone and I was a little stressed and, you know, little, probably a lot stressed and focused on the email that I just got from opposing counsel, he said to me, oh, is that the issue you were talking about before? And I said, yes. And he's like, you know, let me give you a minute to resolve this. And he, he wasn't fighting for the attention. He wasn't insulted. He wasn't hurt because he knew he was on the same team as me. He was supporting me to get my goals done. And similarly, when I share my family with my work colleagues and I tell them about you know, my daughter who, who has a kidney issue and who relapses sometimes. And so they know about that. And instead of hiding it, like I used to hide the fact that I had a family. I, I didn't even tell anybody that I had kids at home. And I felt like when I was at work, I had to be strictly professional. And if you share anything about your family, then you're not focused on being the best lawyer you can be. And so now I share that with them. And when I am up all night with her because she's having a relapse, they know why I'm tired the next day and they know why, why I may be ground down. So I think that, you know, I call it this big tent, right? I have one big tent in my life. Under it is work, family, different hobbies like hiking and the outdoors and uh, living in the country and woodworking. Like those are all things I have under this big tent. And I try not to seclude anything from anyone. And so I try to share all the different parts of me with everyone in, in a way that's fully integrated. Yeah. One of my former guests who also likes to talk about law parenthood, Karen Vladek, talked about sort of the metaphor is not necessarily like the four burners that we've sometimes heard about, and you can only have two burners on at one time, but she talks about it as sort of dials and you need to be really nimble to sort of change your dials at any moment. And just because one dial's dialed up doesn't mean all the other dials are all the way down. They're still there. And she also talked about it, which I think makes a ton of sense, with her husband, Steve. They're kind of like moving their dials all at the same time. And you know they're both incredibly busy people, and they're incredibly engaged parents. And it does help when you're all on the same team and it's fully integrated, that is absolutely such a powerful way of thinking about it. I'll also add something that you said to me in a previous conversation that we had, which is that our role models in a lot of this need to be women because they've been asked to do so much more for so much longer. 
and have tried to build these kind of lives. And, you know, I'm lucky, you know, my dad was very present in my life, even though he was very busy. But those generations of working women who, who sort of define this are incredible role models as well. Absolutely right, Jonah. And and Karen is absolutely wonderful as well. Uh, I'm a big fan and uh, love love the the advocacy that she does. And like you said, and like we talked about previously, I am advocating for dads to be more vocal about being dads, right? When I go to parent-teacher conferences, I publicize that, right? Because even involved dads have been sneaking out, and that doesn't give the permission for younger lawyers and younger associates who want to be dads as well. But these moms, these women who have been, you know, I see the older partners, the older female partners at my firm who have fought and faced so many immense challenges to be both moms and succeed professionally. And so often that them take, you know, leaving the office to pick up their kids from school was viewed as them being less committed to the law and less committed to their career. And they have faced repercussions and they have overcome those challenges and those repercussions because in many cases, people who didn't understand their position were judging them as being less committed because they were equally dedicated to being a mom. And, you know, they have faced those challenges and I am in absolute admiration at how that they balance that and still manage to have thriving, successful careers. Um, despite those challenges. Yeah. I mean, I think we could talk about this forever and and a lot. And the reality is you're doing a great job talking about it online. I try to talk about it. I hope others will talk about it. That comes in the form of taking parental leave when it's offered to you. It comes in recognizing that not everybody has a spouse where you can make that happen and every family needs to make their own choice. But you're absolutely right. At least from my perspective, it is a choice. And then once you treat it like that, you get to turn your dials if you if other people are turning your dials for you, <laughs> you're doing the wrong thing. And sometimes you can make it work and sometimes you can't. And as you said, if that sometimes you get to the point where if that's what it looks like, then I don't want to be that. And, and then you make the decision that you need to make. But look, we've been going for a while and I want to be respectful of your time, especially given sort of how many places you put it. And I'm grateful for especially like how open you've been with your own personal life because because I'll say that's not easy. What's one thing you'd leave with sort of uh a younger lawyer listener, either from your M&A life or from your focusing on dad life, what's one thing you wish you knew sooner or you wish people knew sooner in our profession? It's such a difficult question. It's, it's a wonderful question because I have such a hard time choosing from all the different pieces of advice I would give. But the one thing I would say to a young lawyer or to myself as a young lawyer that I wish I had started earlier is... I wish I had gotten very clear on my values early on. I wish I had gotten crystal clear on what I find, what I view as really important in my life. What are the assets I should be investing in? Is it just financial assets or are there other assets that are equally important that should be invested in, like family, like your spouse and your children and your mental health and your physical health? And so I wish I had become much more clear on the things that I needed to prioritize and the things that I deemed important. And then I would say, set boundaries. Set boundaries early and set boundaries clearly. And you will find that what people, what you give up when you set boundaries, you gain in gravitating toward people who share your values. 
when I have set boundaries and when I see lawyers set boundaries, they find other lawyers who set similar boundaries and who have similar values and are really better off for it. And their mental health and their overall health is enriched by it. And do it before it's too late. I spoke to a a CEO of a large company the other day who's getting to retirement age. He's in his golden years. And he said to me, you know, Ellie, I would do anything to get the time back to spend time with my children. I thought that I would be able to come back and circle back to that later on once I was successful. And I can't. It's gone. And being in that regretful situation, I believe, is the ultimate purgatory. I never want to be there, and I advise young people to start setting those boundaries sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, and that you're able to set boundaries in such a high-octane, as we discussed, industry is a real testament to, to how clear those boundaries have to be. And I think one of the fun parts about this particular interview is that the first half and the second half, if you come in in the middle, go back and listen to the beginning, because by setting those boundaries, it also allows you to sort of work all the way up to those boundaries and know where you are and be professionally fulfilled as well as personally fulfilled. So I'm so grateful that you took the time to do this, and I I hope we can continue our conversations in the future. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Sean. It was a pleasure. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 